don't be afraid of a bit of graft and a busy diary because those things are temporary. But what you have to put in at that time is you have to throw yourself into it because you're not going to get anything back unless you put everything in, basically. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. According to research by the Food Foundation, based on current trends, more than 80% of the children who were born last year will become overweight or obese. The nation's health is arguably the worst it's been in generations, and that predominantly comes down to our relationship with food. Today, for our final episode of our wellbeing feature, we're joined by Rhiannon Lambert, one of the UK's leading nutritionists, a Sunday Times bestselling author, and a fellow podcast host. In 2016, Rhiannon founded Retrition, a renowned Harley Street clinic which specializes in a range of areas from sports nutrition to eating disorders. Retrition believes in empowering everyone to embrace a healthy way of living through the food we enjoy and the life we lead. And with that, I am delighted to welcome Rhiannon to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Rhiannon. How are you? Hi. No, thank you so much for having me. And what scary statistics we're currently facing at the moment. So I feel it's important that everyone, yeah, has access to nutritional information. So let's have this conversation. Yeah, looking forward to getting stuck in. Before we come on to talk about nutrition, we always like to warm up our guests with some quick fire questions. So please, could you finish these sentences after me? Well-being means to me... Happiness and health. Love it. A misconception people have about me is... I don't eat much. <laughs> Classic. Love that. The last time I cried was when? Last night. I've got a baby and a toddler, so motherhood um, is constantly, constantly demanding things of me. <laughs> I can imagine that's uh, it's a lot to juggle when you've got a successful business to run as well. I look after my mental health by trying to do something for me each day trying being the ultimate word at the moment but it's important that's so important isn't it i think that's something that gets lost in life often doesn't it um i've recently started playing football again after 12 or so years of not kicking a ball and i've just realized how important it is for my mental and obviously physical health too so and last question if there was one thing i could change about entrepreneurship it would be kindness in the world of entrepreneurs, there seems to be a lot of competitive nature. And I think actually, if we could have more of a kind approach to business, it would be lovely. I couldn't agree more. I think there used to be that whole mentality of being a kind of really hardcore and mean is the only way to get ahead. All the best leaders I, I look up to are empathetic and lead with kindness. And I think that's something that we always look to like to shine a light on um, on this podcast so thank you for saying that great to already get a sort of snippet into you Rhiannon but let's dive in and I know before you were on a slightly different path so tell us a bit about your early background I think I'm all right in saying in music and theatre before you found your passion for nutrition yeah um gosh it's funny you say you started football recently because I um I started performing again uh, some evenings. Probably a big mistake with my current sleep deprivation and motherhood, but I've really enjoyed it. And it was a big part of my life before I got into nutrition. I was a soprano professionally. I won a competition with Classic FM when I was 17 years old. I moved up to London, signed to various record labels, signed, dropped, signed, dropped, you know, current climate, recording albums, that sort of thing. So it was a complete different career path. 
to the one I'm on now. And I've been so fortunate to perform with so many incredible names. And I've worked along the likes of Brian May and Alfie Bow, Carrie Ellis in the theatre world. And I've absolutely loved it. I've performed all around the world, Singapore, Switzerland, Oman, and done these amazing gigs. And I was so young. And at the same time, it was actually the most miserable time of my life because my mental health was so poor. I wasn't nourishing myself. Back then, it was a pretty toxic music industry where the focus was on aesthetics and how you looked rather than nourishing your body for performance. And that's really, I think, what inspired me to get into nutrition and go and study because that probably changed my life it did save my life by learning the importance of fuel wow that's incredible i didn't realize you know you'd signed to record labels that's amazing i can't claim to be anywhere near that standard but i did theater studies a level and uh, i actually paid my way through uni singing in like a funk and soul band i don't know if i've ever mentioned that on the podcast before but i love singing i love performing and my sister was an actress uh, before she had kids so it's such a great thing to get back into it's something i really miss actually and it's awesome that you've kind of been able to do that again but i can imagine that the start of your career it's um it's not the easiest of industries i know from the outside it seems just so glamorous and, and amazing but it sounds like it wasn't all it's always cracked up to be is that safe to say yeah i mean absolutely you think i mean for me just to put it uh, paint the context a little bit more uh, my family are not musical at all I came from a background with no opportunities really in that way at all. I just happened to win this competition because I could always sing in the family. So once you sign a record label and you move up to London, you think you've made it. The reality was I then had to hand out CVs down Oxford Street looking for a job that were no, you know, the record label were only going to pay one month's rent for me. And then I had to make my own way. I lived in Camden in a council flat at the time. It was really difficult because people back home like oh my goodness yeah I'm from Wiltshire originally like oh Rihanna's made it she's doing all this and I was doing to everyone else the most amazing things I was eating porridge for dinner and breakfast because I couldn't afford to eat I had a job where in London I was just paying for my little box room with one single bed and that was my space it's not all it's cracked up to be and I think the pressure's particularly in the music industry at that time, we didn't have access to social media. It was magazines. It was a very different medium to work within and expectations were very different. So yeah, no one really knew reality back then because no one was sharing it. That's so interesting. And I guess it goes to that point around perception and reality are not always the same things. It doesn't really surprise me that you've gone on to achieve all the things you have because I, I wonder if the, some of the hardest parts of that period of your career helped instill some of that resilience that you need to get through difficult times from building a business. You've mentioned you had a, a sort of maybe a difficult relationship with food back then. So can you share a bit more about how you got to the point where you knew something really needed to change? Oh, absolutely. I just had no education about food. I mean, I always enjoyed food, uh, just like everyone else did. And it was only really until remarks were probably made about my appearance. You know, I'd have, because I'm a classical singer or musical theatre, and I would have the most incredible dresses and gowns that were tailor-made, really heavy, you know, and you can't gain any weight and you can't lose any weight. And I was always put on the scales because they wanted me to be healthy. And when I look back, that was quite a toxic thing to do to a teenager, to keep putting them on the scales every month and check in with them it actually isn't something I think they would dream of doing anymore they were claiming it was for my health whereas actually I think they were checking I wasn't gaining weight and very quickly I was surrounded by a fascinating industry with toxic food behaviors so I was doing one gig at London Fashion Week once where I was singing this kind of ethereal top soprano you know just a load of oohs and ahs and the models were going down the runway and backstage I would be sat with the models and one of them something I'd never dream of promoting but she was eating cotton wool 
And I remember her saying, she's like, oh, this will keep you full. You should have a nibble on cotton wool. And it was toxic things like that that I was surrounded by. And at that point, the no's start to get to you. You've been signed. I gave up everything, the chance to go to university, everything. And I was just working in retail and songwriting in my spare time. And it got to a real point where I think I was so undernourished, just not eating enough, not looking after myself. And I just got fed up. All my friends were at uni having fun, going out on nights out and doing it. I never had a single night out. I, you know, if I'm a soprano, I can't be out drinking and doing all these things. And I lived with mature students at the Royal Academy of Music at the time, because that's where I got my tuition as part of the competition that I won. And I just thought something needs to change. I, I want to use my brain. I need a backup plan if this career doesn't work out. And that's how I got into nutrition. So I did have probably looking back, I would have been diagnosed definitely with some form of eating disorder. But back then there was no support. Wow, that sounds like a really challenging time. And and, and so great that you kind of had foresight to go, no, I'm, I need to change this and sort of go back to university. And, and you went through this big career pivot, which is something that as headhunters, we see a lot of the time, but it's not easy to do. So how did you navigate that change what were some of the hardest parts and have you got any tips for anyone that might be in that sort of situation at the moment oh James I remember it so well I remember going to uni first of all I was classified as a mature student because I was 21 when I went back to study and everyone else like 18 and there there is believe it or not although I don't think it's mature now it definitely is compared to just coming fresh from school to being 21 and earning your own rent and living and that sort of thing so I remember just crying on the phone at the time to my dad and just saying I can't do this. I'm not smart like these 18-year-olds that are math geeks. You know, I am not like this person. I'm a performer. I can't do it. I think there was something about being the underdog that I think a lot of people listening might be able to relate to. It just kind of drives you more. And I kind of just put my type A personality, I will succeed mindset into I'm going to smash this. And I actually won highest achiever at uni in year one, year two, and started, well, I graduated with a first class in science, which is something... I never dreamed I would have done at school. I was not good at chemistry. I could pass physics and biology, but I was not gifted in that area. And I had to work, I'd say, 10 times harder. And I was working three jobs at the time, night shifts at the library, which I actually used to study. I was still working at retail and doing singing gigs when I was at uni. Um, so I'd get back from these gigs abroad and then I'd be thrust into the you know, study hall the next day. So one bit of advice I guess I could say to people starting something new is don't be afraid of a bit of graft and a busy diary because those things are temporary. But what you have to put in at that time is you have to throw yourself into it because you're not going to get anything back unless you put everything in, basically. Great advice. feel that a lot of the people, a lot of the leaders and founders that come on this podcast have had that at some point. It's often a, a moment that you're doubted or, you know, the chips are down. And instead of kind of rolling over and accepting it, you know, it's that desire to kind of fight and go, no, I'm going to prove you wrong. And that was very much at the sort of heart of my my own entrepreneurial journey of starting JBM because I was young and didn't have much experience. And um, I, I guess I used the the knockbacks as, uh, as, as motivation. You obviously did fantastically well in your degree. You went on to work in the industry before you founded Nutrition in 2016. So do you mind telling us just a bit about your experiences from working in the nutrition industry in the earlier part of that career? And ultimately, what led you to setting up your own business? So setting up my own business was not on the agenda, actually. I didn't actually go to university with a five-year plan or any of these things. I think some entrepreneurs have this map that's carved out in front of them. I'm afraid I was very much, uh, I just went with the flow and things just happened. I was always very driven. So throughout my time at university, I always knew the importance of work. I think purely because I had the value of money because I was 
paying for my degree myself. I was paying for my rent at the time. I got out of student loan, but I knew I had to get work experience in the nutrition field if I was going to get a job in it when I graduated, if that's what I wanted to do. So pretty much at the end of my first year and my second year, I was doing work placements for free. And Harley Street, the food doctor, I was the receptionist. That used to be a very renowned clinic at the time. Uh, there used to be products on all the shop shelves from this company called the food doctor, which I don't think it's around as prominently now. You might see a pit of bread or two in the shops, but it was huge. And I must have emailed the founder, Alice, who's now a good friend, about six or seven times. And she said I was so annoying that she just gave me the next intern role because I was so persistent. I had a, like this thing on my diary. And Twitter had just came into uh, fruition at the time I was studying. It shows how old I am. But Twitter just came around. And I set up this Twitter account. And I'd be um, listening to what I was learning and putting in little things on tweets about what I was learning. And no one was really doing that at the time. And then I I found the hashtag journo request. And I was like, oh, I can speak to journalists on Twitter and I can get myself in the paper. So I started replying to journalists. I, I was a bit naive. I have to be honest. You, you should really be fully graduated before you do these things. But I was very transparent. I said, I'm a nutrition student. And actually, I remember Imogen at the Daily Mail was my first journalist. And we, we became friends after that as well. And back when I was in my second year at uni, I was contributing to the Daily Mail saying, actually, it's more than calories. Just because a Mars bar is the same calories as an avocado doesn't mean a Mars bar is better for you. Or, you know, I was doing these kind of features. So I think I was networking unconsciously, not realizing it, because it's what I'd always done in the music industry. I was just wanting to make friends and that really stood me at the forefront of getting opportunities in the field and at the time it was very much you had to network there's no social media you can't just message someone like you do today you have to go to event you have to work for free it was all about free 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 not paid work and I did tons of it and my first job when I graduated Oh, I also did uh, free placements in the NHS. So in the summer holidays, because I didn't really have a home to go to, I was living in halls for three years because I didn't have a family home at the time. I just went to Wiltshire back at a hospital because I couldn't get a London placement. And I worked with the district nurses and the uh, maternity units and shadowed the diabetes wards and the hospices. I did some work in hospices. And I gained a lot of experience, I think, just from putting myself out there, to be honest. It's an amazing lesson to anyone who might be at the early start of an entrepreneurial journey about that. Yeah, as you said, sometimes you've got to do a lot of work for free. You've got to network. You've got to be proactive. You've got to invest in yourself. And I think sometimes people will say sacrifices. And I don't think sacrifice is the right way to look at it you were investing in your future self and it, clearly the rewards are there to be seen i feel like we've teased our audience with you know nutrition so tell us more about actually the work you do kind of who you work with i'm sure our listeners would love to learn more no absolutely so nutrition came about actually it's a funny story because my um boyfriend who's now my husband actually at the time i said oh i want to create this my Twitter name should be Riri's Nutrition. He's like, that's absolutely absurd. You know, no one would take you seriously if you couldn't hit Riri's Nutrition. And to be honest, he was right. We're having a discussion. I was like, well, I'll just merge the word nutrition then. And I created a handle of Retrition. And at the time I was working, I just graduated from uni. I'd run a cafe. So I'd run the food and made the food and learned profit margins and things in this sports cafe in Parsons Green, which is still there, I think, called Transition Zone. Claire's lovely, the lady that owns that. And went on from there. I got scouted to work at a clinic in Harley Street. So I'd gone back to where I was with the food doctor. Worked alongside GPs, um, psychologists, and I was the nutritionist in the clinic. And I got so many clients. I was working really late into the evenings on Thursdays and Sundays, but I was having to pay for the room hire. And I thought, well, I could just 
hire a room myself and do this. So I just knocked on a few doors on Harley Street. I actually worked my way down the street. Have you got any space? And I got down the very bottom of the road to number 10, which was opposite the food doctor clinic, which is number 13 on the other side of the road. And I was like, oh, this is weird. It's opposite where I've been my whole life pretty much as a student. And they said, yes, you know, what do you want to do? I said, oh, I've got quite a few clients that I think would come with me if, if I worked from here and I could do this on the side of my other clinic. And it just grew from there. And all the networking events, the social media at that time, I think I was the first nutritionist online, to be honest. It gained a lot of traction very quickly. I was posting just three times a day to put it in perspective to what people do on social media now I was doing. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, posts about my day in clinic, what I was up to, what food I'd made at the cafe before I'd left there. And it was growing and it got so big. I hired my first employee, Sophie, who's now doing her own nutrition business. And it just kind of took off. Incredible. And it's obviously been up and running for a number of years now. I always like to ask kind of what have been the, the best bits? What have been the biggest learnings? And what have also been the biggest challenges in that? Where do you start? I don't want to bore all your listeners. I think um, the best bit was probably when Lauren, my first editor at Yellow Kite, the publishing 2017, she booked into the clinic to see me and I thought she'd come for an appointment and she came with Tamsin, who was another editor at the publishing house. I thought, this is strange. Two women, obviously for moral support, had booked it and I was thinking, and they just came and put a lot of books on my desk. One of them was Ella's, Deliciously Ella, that you'll all know of the name and a few other people signed to that label. And they said, we've seen what you're doing on social media. I had about 7,000 followers at the time to put this into perspective and we'd love you to write a book. I thought they were joking. I've got to be honest. I never had any ambition to write a book whatsoever that really pivoted everything for me the book and the social media at the time would grow with the kudos of having a, a book and it, it took me a year to write they said just write your philosophy on nutrition and because of the experiences I've had with mental health and I became a master practitioner with psychological interventions to eating disorders as well it's another qualification that took me three diplomas to achieve as well whilst I was running this clinic basically you've got to keep on top of your game and keep learning and keep educating to be the best in your field so that helped me write this book Renourish which became my baby and my philosophy but the downside was that I suddenly was thrown into a world of spreadsheets which I'd done with the cafe before for food but not for my own you know going back registered or um, understanding the difference between cash flow all of these things was absolutely mind-blowing and then before I knew it, I had people in my clinic um, working for me that I had to pay every month an invoice and some of them went on payroll some were self-employed and it was an absolute minefield so I had to start outsourcing that was not my strength I was never going to be good at that area of the business. So I've always had somebody help me on the financial side. My husband helped me at first and then I got to employ a bookkeeper. You have to take a financial hit yourself. I've never taken a salary from my business. I've always put money back into the business. That's how the business has grown and how I've been able to invest and create the supplements company. I now have Retrition Plus as well. So it's been quite a journey. It's a lot to navigate. There's ups, there's downs. Um, navigating star, there's a lot. I guess uh, like a lot of entrepreneurial experiences, there's, a, there's ups and downs along the way, but it's all learnings, isn't it? Clearly the business has, has absolutely thrived in the last few years. And, and you mentioned your books, you've published four, you've got three eBooks and you host one of the UK's most popular health podcasts. So as a podcaster myself, sometimes these things come about organically. Sometimes there's like an idea that it just goes in your mind. And you're just like, I'd love to share this. What was it that made you create your own podcast? 
it was back when there weren't really many podcasts either. I've got, I think I was again, one of the first found, because I used to get to number one in the charts to give you a perspective of how many people were probably even listening to podcasts um, compared to the volume now. I had a lot of VIP clients at the time as well. You know, I had the wonderful Gary Barlow come on my first ever series, Lisa Snowden. Um, I worked with footballers like Cesc Fabregas. So I had a lot of support from my clients at the time as well that wanted to come in. James McVeigh was amazing from the band The Vamps and they all went on my first series because I said I want to do something where you guys are in the limelight quite a bit with what you do, share the importance of nutrition. And Ronnie at the time, Ronnie O'Sullivan, who's a snooker world champion, we had a book coming out together at the time. And I said to Ronnie, well, you know, I used to do a lot of media work. I could host this podcast and we could have a conversation about my clients that were happy to come on and their experiences because it might help other people to say, look, food can make a difference to how you feel. And that's how it started, Food for Thought, really. Yeah, so it really was an organic thing. And actually, I went to Soho Radio, which is a very popular podcast spot now in Soho. But I was one of the first people there before they even had their new big site now. So it used to be down this side alley in this little, it had this really cool vintage feel to it. You know, it was in this little music room. And I remember Gary coming in his car and being like, I can't get through these streets in Soho. And it was so funny. And now they've got this huge podcast studio they've built around the corner near the Veggie Prep, which is fab. But I'm a bit of an um, OG in the area, I think. Yeah, you are. I was nervous about getting you on. You know, proper OG. But it's amazing. I mean, it's it's a great new medium. It's, at the time, a great new medium to kind of sort of inspire and educate a whole new audience. And by using high-profile people, I think this, it kind of has that, you know, that real extra effect sometimes to kind of see it, hear them talking about their journeys. I think I can see why it really took off. I want to talk a bit about building healthier relationships with food because it is so important I think increasingly for us to to make the right choices but there's lots of noise there's noise about quick fixes which are often more harmful than good so I'd love to hear from your experience what does a healthy relationship with food actually look like and what are some of the common mistakes you see people make so a healthy relationship with food is unique to you. It's uh, providing your body with no deprivation, but equally just thinking, what can I add in every day? And en enjoyment and satisfaction are, and fullness are things that people don't really know how to tap into. And I think people mistake fullness with satisfaction ratings after you've eaten all the time. And Sadly, in the media, it's always about deprivation. It's always about what you can take out. It's always about the fat. And one big red flag, and I find it very frustrating because a lot of podcasts I love to listen to myself have scientists on that specialize. And I'm a big fan of these scientists in their specific research areas. But that doesn't mean that research should be applied to the general public in the way it is because we are all unique. We're from different backgrounds. We have different financial restraints. We have our own relationships that we grow up with with food. And one of the big problems we have in society today is that we have no diversity and there's a huge spike of ultra processed foods. I think there was a stat where most of the food we consume comes from something like only seven plants and five animal species. And we're making our whole diet off this tiny amount of diversity variety whereas in the western world we have access to so much food but we don't know how to cook we're living on convenience bosses aren't giving people proper lunch times or encouraging them to have lunch away from their desk families are growing up without this education and knowledge and that's why we have the stat you delivered at the beginning of the podcast with childhood obesity rates rising and ultimately i think people are so confused because they hear fasting they hear keto they hear people say moderation which i do use but actually moderation looks different to everybody because we all have a different view and perception of what that should be food is also a coping strategy when we're stressed some people go off it some people go to it 
the types of food you crave are often very different to the ones your body may need at that time. So it's hugely psychological, hugely environmental, and equally what you know, your food world, what you grow up with. I think we know that there isn't a one size fits all, which often it kind of feels the easy way to kind of deal with it. But, but there isn't when it comes to nutrition. And you discuss that in your book. What's your take on diets? Uh, do they work? Uh, and I'm sure there are people listening to this that have been on them. And are there any rules that you absolutely live by when it comes to your health and well-being? Yeah, so let's start with the diets conversation. If we took the word diet as black and white, what it actually means, which is the food we eat every day, then of course diets would work because you're tailoring food that suits your body in the energy requirements you need. However, if we're talking about diets in terms of the media and what's out there, we're talking about certain shakes and products that are labeled as healthy alternatives because they contain all the vitamins and minerals, or we're looking at meal replacements, fasting, skipping meals, protein being really high, calorie counting, calorie deficits, you know, people are shouting things from the rooftops. But the real answer is that they only work short time for 99% of the people out there. Unless you're starting very overweight at a point where a diet will help you get the initial weight off, but then lifestyle changes have to kick in to keep that trajectory going, which is where nutrition's complicated. It's not just about following a meal plan. It's about your life and your attitude towards food and what's achievable for you. Can you even cook a meal at night? Do you have the time or are you running up and down to the kids' bedrooms or are you working night shifts? Are you a hospital, a surgeon where you are in an operating theater for hours on end? So the rules I abide by, and I'd like to not call them rules, but just kind of philosophies is really what can I add in today? And I try and say, look, I allow myself chocolate and I often have it at the start of the day, actually, rather than the end of the day. I really enjoy having chocolate after breakfast. It's just my little thing. And I'm a believer that if you allow yourself something you enjoy, you're less likely to overeat on it. And it's that mindset that's the key to successful nutrition long term. There's no rules that you should have chocolate after dinner. You know, why can't you have it in the morning if it's what you fancy? You're then less likely to eat it for the rest of the day. It's shifting things on its head. Can I get more color in today? Have I actually had any fruit? Maybe I'll have a snack later and I'll grab some fruit or go and treat myself to something I enjoy. And I think that's such a healthy outlook on food because then you start to naturally make better choices. Such great advice. And as somebody that loves chocolate, I love the idea of a little bit of chocolate after breakfast. And maybe that will stop my post-dinner snacking, which has always been a challenge for me. I think a lot of the time nutrition and fitness focus on the physical aspect, but we actually really should be focusing on the mental health benefits that come with eating right and moving our bodies. So what are some of the biggest benefits that you see for yourself, but also for your clients when they start focusing on actually what it is they're eating? Oh, it's life changing. And we have data now, the SMILES trials, which is huge, one of the largest um, studies of its kind that showed eating a Mediterranean style diet can re is more effective than antidepressants or being on med medication in some instances. Now, I'm not saying stop taking medication. If anyone's listening, always consult your GP, but diet can have a big impact on your mental health. It has an impact on our gut health if we get more fiber and color and plants in, which in turn sends signals to our brain, which creates our happy hormones. Serotonin, that happy hormone is linked to melatonin, which is linked to our circadian rhythms and our sleep cycles. If you're looking at the healthy fats you consume, a lot of the cells in our brains, the 60% of our brain is made of fats. And we want to be getting avocados, nuts, olive oil, seeds in, and we're less likely to get dementia or Alzheimer's because we know that the generation that have a higher ratio of these didn't have these elements to their diet. So there's also that area to think of our grandparents didn't have as many healthy fats in their diet. They had a lot of saturated fat from butter and animal produce. Cut down your animal produce, get more plants. I'm not saying give it up. Just try and increase the plant ratio more. 
don't need to be having so much of what we're over consuming actually in society which is not helpful for our heart health our risk of diabetes as well as our mental health skin there's so many factors i think uh when it comes to nutrition that's much deeper than the aesthetic look like you said and how we feel every day and equally longevity in our joints and those sorts of things are all linked. And then there's the polyphenols, like all the dark colored berries. They're heavily researched. I have the most amazing scientist on the podcast, uh, Dr. Wolf Marks, and he looks at blueberries in America. And it's shown that blueberries can help improve our IQ. And it's incredible. We think these are these powerful phytochemicals, which give them that purple or red rich color. And a lot of people don't get those colors in their diet because they're just eating ultra processed beige food. So it can help. Thank you so much. I'm sure this is going to have the desired effect, even for myself. And this is, is a nice segue on to the next question, because a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are founders of startups, entrepreneurs, investors, work in high growth startups, just very demanding industries and often lead very sort of super busy lives. Similarly, my sister's a nurse. You know, we talked about parenthood. You know, we're all so busy now. And one of the first things that I notice in my own life that kind of falls by the wayside is nutrition and exercise. I'll grab a quick snack. I'll stop going to the gym because I'm just so busy or I tell myself that. And it's a very slippery slope. You suddenly get into those bad habits. So what advice do you have for people like me who know that I need to be prioritizing what I eat and fitness, but often busy schedules get in the way? How can we stop that cycle? First of all, all busy people listening, you need to diarize or it won't go in. I'm the same. I need to put in my diary a 20 minute break just to eat. Otherwise, my day will run away with me. So please pop it into your diaries. Have a large bottle of water by your desk. I tend to have a large 1.5 liter. I want you to drink all of that water in a day as a minimum. Keep drinking. Toilet breaks are good things because you get up, you stretch, you do stretches, and then you're more productive anyway. Water also helps with concentration. Now, when it comes to preparing meals, have a kind of list of five things you rotate every day but change like always carry in your bag if you can a piece of fruit that you're mixing up every day a bag of nuts or seeds and some oat biscuits or something and then you can have a pot of hummus in your fridge at work if that's available to you or some nut butter in a sachet in your bag and just little things that you can have on the go if you're not able to grab a meal at least you're not going hungry which will keep you more productive and means you're getting those extra vitamins and minerals in but really getting organized helps and I know it's the last thing you want to do is cook in the evenings but you can buy really good options in the supermarkets now in some of the aisles particularly that are really balanced with lots of carbohydrates proteins and vegetables fats and these amazing bulky salads and sandwiches and wraps so Sandwiches be wary of the filling. There's often hardly any filling of nutrition in it when you're buying a sandwich and you're just basically eating bread and mayo. The choices you make can really make a difference every day. Sounds like prioritization and organization are really important. Brilliant tips. So I'm going to try and make some improvements in this part of my life because I think it will really benefit me in the long run and I'm sure our listeners too. Before we get to our final wrap-up question, you did touch upon veganism and clearly there's been this big shift towards uh, plant-based diets so i'd love your take on that shift and whether you've cut meat out altogether or you're trying to reduce your consumption what advice do you have for anyone that's listening to this that wants to make more sustainable food choices so to anyone listening understand plant-based does not mean vegan they're too interchangeable they're mixed up terms plant-based just means reducing your animal produce which actually i think is what everyone should be doing for their health the research is there we know that people don't get enough fiber in this country fiber comes in plant foods Fibers involved in reduced cardiovascular disease, reduced diabetes, reduced hypertension, reduced everything. <laughs> and it's ironic that in the Western countries, we have 
poor gut health compared to underdeveloped countries where they don't get the access to food, yet their guts are thriving because they're eating more plant-type food. And I'm sure they'd wish they had the access to all the produce we have here. So the two terms are very different. I think veganism is a very ethical lifestyle choice, which if you can do it, you can do it healthily, but you do need supplementation of things like B12, iodine, selenium, calcium, iron, those types of things. But going plant-based, proven. The Lancet Journal came out with the Eat Lancet uh, research, which did show um, impact on greenhouse gas emissions being reduced for the environment. Also just the array of health benefits. So it means eating around 70 grams of red meat as a portion a week instead of however many some people are probably having it daily. It means really cutting down the amount of cheese and especially things like cow's milk that you're consuming you don't have to give these things up please just be mindful of the luxury we have in this country and the access to food that i think we all take for granted so it's a good move to be plant-based it is my honest professional opinion as well as my personal opinion very good to know thank you we've obviously talked a lot about that from an adult's perspective some of the most shocking data out there suggests that one in ten children are obese by the time they turn five that gets to 23 percent by the age of 11 um, and as a parent to a seven-year-old daughter myself this is like terrifying stats so i'd love your advice and insights on how any parents listening to this can help their children again build better relationships with food i think actually more worrying i think it's one in three children are now overweight or obese so the stats are narrowing hugely at the moment in this country and i think the advice would really be that it's really really difficult because it stems down from those first 12 months in the early days and yeah under the age of two so we have research called the first a thousand days that's when you're child's brain develops the most, you predispose them to their health in later years. And that's when the nutrition window is vital. And you want to be getting the amount right. There's no need for ultra processed foods, lots of sugar and salt those early years. And what we see is a lack of interest in activity, of course, you know, there's more gaming, there's more TV, there's more screens, more sedentary activities. But actually, I would say the biggest culprit is our diets. And often it's also nutrition provided at schools, but it does start at home. So it's access to affordable food. And this is a this is a huge question because there's no blame that should go on a parent wanting to do their best for their child or on a school. The government do need, in my opinion, to step up. They need to regulate these manufacturers, regulate produce sold at children. You know, I work for a baby food brand and I'm disgusted when I look at the shop shelves of what other brands are putting out there for their children to consume, the amount of snacks in the aisle targeted at kids that are appealing. So it's a depressing answer because I don't have the answer for you, James. I think the answer is education. It's helping parents provide healthy food for kids. And that's got to come from a government level if in some areas the access is not there. Totally agree. I really hope we see big changes on this because it's uh, our children's future is just so important. And this feels like something that is could be easily achieved with some intervention from the top. My final question before we get to the wrap up questions is just around there is going to be people listening to this that will think, well, I really want to do this, but it's a cost of living crisis and food is expensive and it's really hard to Sometimes the cheapest options are the unhealthiest. Any final bits of advice for anyone that's struggling with that at the moment around how they can make healthier choices without breaking the bank? Again, it's education, how you see or how you know how to cook or build a meal. Because if you're using cans of food, then it's not the case. Or if you're using your frozen aisle, it's not the case. Frozen veg and fruit is more nutritious than the ones on the shop shelf because they don't lose that antioxidant potential of exposure to oxygen over time or transport once they're picked. 
because once these vegetables and fruit are prepared and picked, they're frozen instantly, which retains the nutrition. And that's going to save you so much money because you can keep using those items across the course of the week. But then we've got the cooking skills that come into it. It's knowing that, oh, I can just put frozen berries on my porridge that morning. Oats are really affordable. If you can get into stuff like that, you can use a whole pack of oats, like a kilo pack, and it will last you by own brand. You don't need to buy the branded varieties. Own brand is exactly the same supermarket owned compared to big brands. Cans of food get a bad rep. Actually, they're great if they're preserved in water, not in syrups and things for fruit. But beans and pulses, if we cut down the animal produce we're consuming, you will save tons of money. Meat is expensive. You don't need it if you're eating loads of beans and pulses. Fish, we do need a little bit of if you consume it for health benefits in your diet. Again, you can buy frozen fillets. We've got a big cost of living crisis. We've also got the overconsumption of expensive items crisis. We shouldn't be living like this. Meat used to be viewed as a rich nutrient source. We only needed once or twice a week back in the day. Suddenly it's become something we're consuming three, four times a day. Have it and look forward to it at the weekend and try and get creative in the kitchen with the more affordable items during the week. That's great advice, Shannon. Thank you. It's been a really fascinating conversation and I'm sure it's going to inspire our listeners um, to build some uh, healthier habits when it comes to eating and and nutrition. I want to ask you in one sentence, what does the future hold for nutrition? So like I said, I'm not a five-year planner. So for me, me, the future holds exciting new big projects, probably in 2024, expansion of nutrition plus because there's more products on the way, the supplements range, but equally just more access for more people to free information. Very exciting. And if you could be mentored by one person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? If I could, it would be Marie Curie, who was one of the first female scientists to win a Nobel Prize. But she was alive in the 1920s onwards. So I just think as a woman in a time where it was not equal in society, where there was such female oppression, to get involved in science, which was dominated by men, to come out and actually win a Nobel Prize. And actually, she's one of the only people to win two in her lifetime. I just think what an inspirational woman and what a privilege it would be to get inside her head. Being a woman's hard enough when you're suppressed in society. So she's amazing. I love that answer. My daughter was learning about Marie Curie at school recently and and was so inspired and interested. Uh, So it's wonderful to hear that that her story is being shared in schools as well. Thank you. And finally, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Oh, that's so easy. Treat others as you'd like to be treated. I just think, like I said at the beginning of the episode, compassion, empathy, we're all human beings and that's that would make the world go round in a much nicer way, I think. It's such a simple but brilliant uh, piece of advice and one I think we would the world would be a much happier place if we all kind of lived by that mantra. So Rhiannon, thank you so much for being a 40 Minute Mentor, uh, sharing some amazing tips and your own career story with us. It's super inspiring. And, um, you know, it's the perfect way to wrap up this feature series on health and wellness. So thank you so much and have a fantastic rest of 2023. Thank you for having me. And that's a wrap for our wellbeing series. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Rhiannon and the amazing mentorship we've heard over the last four weeks. I love talking to all of our 40 Minute Mentors throughout this series on a topic that is really dear to my heart. And if you loved it too, then I'd love to hear what your favourite episode was. Please let us know by leaving a review or by tagging JBM in a LinkedIn post. 
And if you'd like to give any more feedback, then please feel free to reach out to our producer, Hannah, on hannah at jbmc.co.uk. That's all for us for now. As always, we will have plenty more mentorship coming your way. So make sure you hit follow or subscribe to be the first to know about our next episode. Thank you again for all your support, and I'll see you again soon for more pocket-sized mentorship. Thank you.